This may be a reoccurring theme today, I hope so, but welcome to the Grove. Very happy that you're here on this beautiful Easter Resurrection Sunday. Uh, Before we get started, if I can just uh, do something, I'm going to say a phrase and you speak another phrase back to me. This is called call and response. And I'm going to say, he is risen. And your response is, he is risen indeed. Okay, so he is risen. All right. Now forget that because he's not risen yet in the story. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence, for your mercies, and for your grace. And we thank you for each of these three days where you endured this passion. Passion is sometimes excitement, and it is sometimes zeal, and it is sometimes triumph, like we experienced last week with the march, with the parade of peace, with Palm Sunday. But more often, the truest meaning of passion is the willingness to suffer with and alongside for a person or for a cause. I'm so grateful this morning that you are a God who stands not aloft and aloof, but enters into our story. 2,000 years ago, And today, Friday was a dark day in the Passion Week, a day of violence, a day of pain, and a day of suffering. Not often identified in our culture as passion, but surely the most passionate of events. Psalm 22 Verses 1 and 2 rang from the mouth of Jesus Christ as he was nailed to a cross, searching for breath, doing all he could in the moment. We feel his pain as he cries out the words of the psalmist, My God, my God, why have you turned your back on me? Your ears are deaf to my groans. Oh my God, I cry all day and you are silent. My tears in the night bring no relief. On that Friday as Jesus was paraded On the Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering, to Golgotha and to the cross, we see him nailed. See as they strip the robe from off his back and spread his arms and nail them to the cross. The dark nails pierce him and the sky turns black and love is firmly fastened on to loss. But here, a pure change happens. On this tree, loss becomes gain. Death opens its birth. Here, wounding heals and fastening makes free. Earth breathes in heaven and heaven roots in earth. And here we see the length, the breadth, the height where love and hatred meet and love stays true. Where sin meets grace 
and darkness turns to light. We see what love can bear and be and do. And here our Savior calls us to his side. His love is free. His arms are open wide. The dark nails pierce him and the sky turns black. We watch him as he labors to draw breath. He takes our breath away to give it back. Return it to his birth through his slow death. We hear him struggle breathing through the pain. Who once breathed out his spirit on the deep. Who formed us when he mixed the dust with rain. And drew us into his consciousness from sleep. His spirit and his life he breathed in all, mantles his world in his one atmosphere. And now he comes to breathe beneath the pall of our pollutions, draw our injured air to cleanse it and renew his final breath. Breathes and bears us through the gates of death. Jesus' body is taken down from the cross. His spirit and his life he breathes in all. Now on his cross, his body breathes no more. Here at the center, everything is still spent and emptied, open to the core. A quiet taking down, a prizing loose, a crossbeam lowered like a weighing scale. Unmasking of each thing that had its use along with drawing of each bloodied nail. This is ground zero. Emptiness in space with nothing left to say or think or do but look unflinching on the sacred face that cannot move or change or look at you. Imagine, if you will, what it must have been to be with the disciples on that Friday afternoon. Imagine their thoughts running rapid through their mind, discovering, deciding, questioning, why did this happen? Why did it have to happen this way? Now, we know some 2,000 years later that some of the reasons were surely political. Jesus had come in and he had upset the balance. He had just the Sunday before arrived on a colt instead of a donkey, coming in the way of peace instead of Roman Empire and violence. He had gone then straight to the temple and overturned the tables and ran out the animals Saying, you've made my house into a den of thieves. It is a house of prayer no more. So were the reasons he was crucified political? Yes. Were the reasons he was crucified spiritual? Yes. I mean, one minute the crowds were flocking to Jesus, hoping for free bread and healing. And the next minute they were shouting, crucify him. The disciples must have thought to himself, we are no better. One minute we're eating a meal with him and he was calling us as friends. And now we stand here at a distance, unwilling to identify ourselves with him and to risk what he is going through. 
They hear the words, forgive them, and they must have said to themselves as we do today, forgive us. Was there no other way to show us what God is truly like? Was there no other way that God could be revealed? Did it have to be killing and in conquest and violence and hate? God is revealed in this crucified man, giving of himself to the very last breath, giving and forgiving. And there could be no other way to show us what we are truly like. We do not know what we're doing. If God is like this, and we are like this, everything must change. Everything must change. I thought I knew how this would end, but here I am, running for my life, or is it running from my life, running from everything I thought to be true? I betrayed my truest friend. him a prisoner, a dying king, carrying a burden he didn't deserve. My master is betrayed. My hope is lost. how this would end but I didn't understand because I wasn't really looking i 
everything has changed. We never imagined a day that he would not be by our side. There is a chill among the silence in the room, speechless, numb, lost, and broken with devastation. For he is gone. Our friend, our master, our rabbi, our savior, our beloved Jesus died on that cross and he left us here alone. Right now, we can't help but feel that it is all over. Everything we believed in and held so dear is gone. And where are we to turn? We left our lives behind to follow him. We surrendered our hearts to his message. We believed in him and all for what? Only to watch him die? How are we to ever shake the image of our Jesus, our Jesus carrying the cross on the road to Golgotha? How will we ever forget the strange darkness that swept around the world the moment he took his last breath? He loved life, and yet he didn't cling to it. And he loved life, and yet he was not controlled by the fear of death. He knew this would destroy our reality, and yet he let death come even still. Right up to the last minute, we dared hope that God would send a rescue in some angels, that he would stop the whole charade and let everyone see how wrong they were and how right Jesus was. But no last minute rescue came, only death. Bloody, sweaty, filthy, ugly death. And what are we to even do now? What do we even know? He is dead and everything has changed. Does this mean that uprising is now dead too? For the disciples, this was a day of doubt, despair, disillusionment, and devastation. The very hope that they had clung to was ripped away in a single moment. And while we cannot fully fathom how exactly they felt on this day of darkness in waiting, we cannot deny what it feels to be overcome with these same feelings. Because we know devastation, don't we? We know doubt all too well. We can speak to the moments in our lives where the things that we love the very most were taken away from us before we were ready to ever say goodbye. We know what it feels like to have lost all hope. We have witnessed firsthand the intense pain that this life can bring. And at times, that pain swallows us whole. How can we face this reality in such pain? How do we remain hopeful when it seems that at times our Jesus has left us too? Sitting here on this side of history, we understand that there is more to this story, this story of redemption. But the disciples were sitting in the magnitude of total heartbreak. Their thoughts were paralyzed and they were without hope. But imagine this with me. What if there was even a glimmer of hope on that Saturday? Because isn't hope having the ability to see glimmers of light even when there's darkness all around you? The glimmers are present even on the darkest of days. Romans chapter 8, verses 24 and 26. For we have been saved in this hope and for this future. But hope does not involve what we have already have or already see. For who goes around hoping for what he already has? But if we wait expectantly for things that we have never seen, then we hope with true perseverance and eager anticipation. As similar things happen when we pray. 
When we are weak and we do not know what to pray, the Spirit steps in and articulates the prayers for us with groaning too profound for words. If there was even a glimmer of hope on this day, I would suspect that as they sat in silence and waiting, that their thoughts were drifted towards what they knew of Jesus to be true. And having closely followed Jesus for all this time, they could not deny that what was true of his life is that he was love. It was everything he ever embodied to them. And could it be enough for them to hang on to now? Was this enough not to fear what the days ahead would hold? 1 John chapter 4 tells us that there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out all fear. Love will never invoke fear. Perfect love expels fear. And Jesus was perfect love. It is of no coincidence that 365 times in Scripture, more than any other command, we read, do not be afraid. It is as if it's what we needed for every single day of the year to wake up and to know that today we don't need to fear Where you stand today, don't be afraid. And where you stand tomorrow, don't be afraid. And on the next day and the next, because there is no fear in love, he lived and he died the embodiment of love. Therefore, even on the days of darkness and pain and waiting and all the unknown, even still, there are glimmers of his hope all around us. I thought I knew how this would end, but here I am, waiting. He's gone, and now all hope is lost. What happens next? When all hope is lost, there is no next. There is no running. Only waiting, frozen in time, while the world moves on around me. You said you would never leave me, but where are you now? How long, God, will you hide your face? When will you remember your promise? This place is trying to break Oh, 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 oh,
At the crack of dawn on Sunday, the women came to the tomb carrying the burial spices they had prepared. They found the entrance stone rolled back from the tomb, and so they walked in. But once inside, they couldn't find the body of the Master Jesus. 
They were puzzled, wondering what to make of this. Then out of nowhere, it seemed two men, light cascading over them, stood there. The women were awestruck and bowed down in worship. The men said, why are you looking for the living one in the cemetery? He is not here, but raised up. Remember how he told you when you were still back in Galilee that he had to be handed over to the sinners, to be killed on a cross, and in three days rise up? And then they remembered Jesus' words. I grew up in church, and I made what I thought was the right decision to ask Jesus into my heart to get saved. Uh, I made a decision to follow Jesus. I prayed the prayer at, at a very young age. And I was taught at an early age to believe certain things about God, certain things about the Bible, certain things about this church, other churches, out, people outside the church. I was even taught what to think about people of color, people of other religions, certain things about women or people of other lifestyles. And for the majority of my life, I went on believing those things. All at the same time, there was this questioning, this doubting, this unrest. It was going on in the inside of my soul and something just wasn't feeling right. Answers I was given no longer made sense. A side note, I wonder if anyone else finds it strange that we would ask children who perhaps have yet to ride a bike or change a diaper or load a dishwasher, feed themselves, to make a decision to commit their lives to a man who asked his followers to love their enemies, to give everything and expect nothing in return, or to face public execution if necessary. And so looking back now, it's obvious that as a kid, I did not know what I was getting into. I wondered how many of us may have had that same experience. So I went on with this whole Christian thing, and the majority of my life, I still had this unrest inside of me. I doubted some things about God and about what it meant to be a Christian. And I remember in college being surrounded by some great people who pushed me and challenged my faith. But I continued to ask questions and about the things that I thought I already knew. And then I remember as a, working as a youth pastor in Grand Rapids, Michigan, watching a documentary about some teenagers from New York that really threw me for a spin. And I began to ask bigger questions. And since that time and my entire time here, those questions have become louder and the unrest inside has become stronger. And I'm at a place in my journey with God where I am still wrestling with God on some things. Things that I I believed, things I thought I was certain about my entire life. And in these times of questioning and doubting and wrestling, I have come out on the other side, sometimes believing the same things, sometimes changing my belief or on some other things. But one thing has been true all out, was that my approach to what is true about God is much, is much less arrogant than it was when I was a teenager who thought he knew everything. Can anyone relate to that? Parents like, yeah, I have teenagers that think they know everything, right? For me, it was no longer about being right. Have you ever believed something about God? Maybe your whole life and then an experience, a a moment of enlightenment, a a voice of a friend, a lyric to a song, a a re-examining of sacred text brought about a change in your beliefs or what you thought was your belief. 
Does anyone believe something differently about God that you did five years ago, 10 years ago, 15? I don't think I'm alone in this. And this is one of the things that I value most about this church. As I love that we're not a bunch of robots spitting out identical answers. Like, if you were to ask me, what does the Grove believe on this? You might get a hundred variations of that. Because we don't claim to have all the answers. We're not regurgitating things that we learned in Sunday school uh, from a Sunday school teacher with great intentions, but bad theology. And I love the fact that we look different, we talk different, we think different, we vote different, we smell different, right? And sometimes, and sometimes we even believe different here. And I love and I value the fact that all of us come from different places. We all have different stories and different backgrounds. And some of us have been in church our entire lives. Some of us have been in church much less than that. And so I don't know where everyone here is on their faith journey. I don't know how much of the story you believe if you believe it at all. There may be a couple of you that are here for the first time. You took a wrong turn off Slope Street, right? Right? And you just whispered to yourself, we need to get out of here quick, right? Some of you thought there was a picnic today with a ginormous Easter egg hunt. April Fool's. <laughs> Sweet. My kids are still looking for eggs. That was so funny. I was like, hey. what, what I love is that we have this open-handed approach to our faith here. And what I mean by that is for many of us, we no longer hold on so tight to what we believe that there's no room for growth or change, right? If you were to take your hands and squeeze them as tight as you could and then open them up, you would see, you would see your fingernail imprints, right? I've heard it say, uh, said about fundamentalism is that it's holding on so tightly to your beliefs that your fingerprints leave imprints on the palm of your hand. Rachel Held Evans says Christianity sits perpetually on the precipice of doom. That one scientific discovery or one cultural shift or one difficult to, uh, theological question away from extinction. And we're so fearful of losing our grip on faith that we squeeze the life out of it. And so for me, moving forward, I'm just trying to figure this Jesus thing out, right? And we're inviting others to journey with us. And so the question that is begged to be asked at this point is, how do we do this as a community? How do we do this type of approach to faith together in relationship? How can we get along without the person we disagree with taking their ball and going home, so to speak? And tragically, the Christian church's ideology has created all these uh, systems and formulas to highlight our differences instead of what unites us as believers. And so we spend our time in churches making mental lists of our beliefs and doctrines that we can either decide which ones we believe for ourselves, the ones we want to fight over, the ones that would cause our churches to split, and the ones that are mountains that we'll die on. As opposed to figuring out what we agree on and what we're united in, and then being the church where Jesus prayed for unity not uniformity. And those things are very different. We're not a liberal church. We're not a conservative church. We're not a Republican church. We're not a Democratic church. But we are a church of liberals and conservatives and Republicans 
And Democrats, third party, politically unaffiliated, were believers and skeptics, were skeptical believers. Married, single, straight, gay, young, not as young, feminists, recovering evangelicals, right? Catholic backgrounds, Protestant backgrounds. If we were making a list, it would go on and on and on. But these are not the things that define us as our community. Instead, we are the beloved sons and daughters of God. We are a group of people who would not normally mix. But we gather under the understanding that we are a mess and we need God. It's our brokenness that we share, and it's Christ that holds us together. You see, the early church understood this. The Galatian church knew that there was no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. And Jesus is saying that there's a better description for the church, that we are all one in Christ. We are all a mess and we all need a savior. Because when we're left on our own, we'll serve ourselves, we'll follow idols, we'll medicate our pain, greed will enter into our hearts, guilt will control our thoughts, ego will rule our lives. Because we are a mess and we need God. And if you don't think you're a mess, please stick around. There are a few people who will point it out to you. We are a church, right? We can help you figure out your mess. But I want to share with you a familiar story real quick as it's one that we've referenced before. And, we're, and it's, I love that it's today. But it's the, in the same chapter of Luke 24. It says, the same day, two of them were walking to the village of Emmaus, about seven miles out of Jerusalem. They were deep in conversation, going over all these things that had happened. In the middle of their talk and questions, Jesus came up and walked alongside them. But they were not able to recognize who he was. He asked, what's this you're discussing so intently as you walk along? And they stood there, long-faced, like they had lost their best friend. Then one of them, his name was Cleopas, said, Are you the only one in Jerusalem who hasn't heard what's happened during the last few days? And he said, Well, what has happened? They said the things that happened to Jesus of Nazarene. He was a man of God, a prophet, dynamic in work and word, blessed by both God and all the people. And then our high priests and leaders betrayed him, got him sentenced to death and crucified him. And we had our hopes up that he was the one the one about to deliver Israel. And now it's the third day since it happened. But now some of our women have completely confused us. Early this morning, they were at the tomb. And they couldn't find his body. They came back with a story that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of our friends went off to the tomb to check and they found it empty, just as the women had said. But they didn't see Jesus. And then he said to them, so thick-headed, so slow-hearted. Why can't you simply believe all the prophets said? Don't you see that these things had to happen, that the Messiah had to suffer and then enter into his glory? And then he started at the beginning with the book of Moses and went on through all the prophets, pointing out everything in the scriptures that referred to him. They came to the edge of the village where they had, uh, were headed, and he acted as if he was going to go on, but they pressed him. Stay and have supper with us. It's nearly evening. The day is done. And so he went in with them. And here's what happened. He sat down at the table with them, taking the bread. He blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And at that moment, open-eyed, wide-eyed, they recognized him. And then he disappeared. 
Back and forth they talked. Didn't we feel on fire as, his, as he conversed with us on the road, as he opened up the scriptures for us? They didn't waste a minute. They were up on their way back to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 there. Their friends gathered together, talking, uh, talking away. And it's really important the master has been raised up because Simon saw him. The first part of following Jesus is that we're together doing it. That we need to be in community. Faith is done with other people and it's done together. Our faith is very personal, but it's never private. You and I were created for community. We can look at all the way back to the story of creation. Where God is out there and he, he looks and he creates and he says, this is good, this is good. And then he creates man and says, for the first time, it was not good. Because you and I, we were designed to be in community. And then Jesus draws them back to scripture here. Because they were the disciples. They, they had walked with him previously. They saw the miracles. They, they knew their Hebrew Bible. N.T. Wright says this. We need to learn how to read the scriptures. And for that, we need, as our teacher, the risen Lord himself. This passage forms one of the most powerful encouragements to pray for his presence and sense of guidance whenever we study the Bible, individually, in pairs, or in a larger group. We need to be prepared for him to rebuke our foolish and faithless readings and to listen for his fresh interpretations. Only with him at our side will our heart burn within us and lead us to the point where we see him face to face. We have to go back to the scriptures, it says. We have to be willing to see where we may have read it wrong, where we may have misread it. We need to pray for the Holy Spirit to guide us through that. And if I'm not willing to be wrong about my most deeply held beliefs, then it's not the truth that I'm after, it's control. Verse 17, he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And the Greek word translates discussed to be examined, to dispute, to reason together, to investigate together. It seemed that these things were done in relationship with each other, that the disciples, the followers of Christ would investigate scripture together in relationship. Please hear me. Do not get into a deep spiritual discussion with people that you are not in relationship with. Build a relationship first. Talk about life first. Then you have a foundation for the latter. And if then you disagree on, disagree on some things, that's okay. You can still be friends. That's what united you together was the relationship. The goal for our faith is to not get a bunch of people we agree with, right? Build a church and then hang out together. We won't always agree on things. When you disagree with people, you don't break off relationship. I love to tell this joke. Hear me out. There's a man gets uh, stranded on an island, right? And he's there for a couple years. He's, he, he sees a boat coming by. He sends the, the SOS flag out. The boat sees him, comes in there. The captain comes out of the boat and says, are you alone? He says, yes, I've been alone for years. I'm, I, I need help rescuing you. And, and the captain says, well, why are there three houses up there? Were there people here before? He's like, no, the, the, you don't understand. See that house over there? That's my home. That's where I live. And that's where, you know, I, I sleep at night. And, and that one right there, that, that one's my church. That's where I go and worship God. And the captain said, well, what about the other building? He's like, that's my old church. <laughs> yeah. 
I find it very, <laughs> I find it very comforting that the disciples of Jesus talked about current issues of life, wrestled through these issues, examined them, investigated them, reasoned them. And there's no mention of either of them walking away from each other or breaking off the relationship. And they find themselves in these moments of conversations where they're dealing with what is happening around them. Part of following Jesus is being present physically with each other and then being present with what's going on in your life. Now, obviously, Jesus knew the answer to this question. He knew what they were talking about. He was there, right? And, and, and so he knows the details and the reasons. But Jesus still wants you to answer the question. And so he's encouraging the discussion and the questions. What are you guys talking about? What's happening in your life right now? How are you interpreting the things that are happening around you this weekend? How did that go for you? How do you read the scriptures? What is the cross, the empty tomb? What does the sacred text say about me? And Jesus has given these guys the space they need to work through their issues. He gives them the space to tell their story, space to share their pain, space to process it, space to wrestle, space to doubt, and the space to speak their disappointments, and the space for unbelief and questions. These guys honestly don't know what to make of what just happened. Everything they thought they knew is being challenged. They're afraid, they're tired, confused, they're doubting. And his first response to their struggling wasn't to preach at them, wasn't to correct their thinking, not to argue with them. He doesn't even try to give them an answer. He just listens to their reasoning, their discussion, their wrestling, their doubting. He lets them work through their spirituality, their issues, and he gives them the space to be wrong. Verse 19 says, what things? Well, what just happened, man? Life moments. They're, they're trying to figure out their lives, their beliefs, the significance of the cross, the resurrection, the empty tomb. They're trying to understand what just happened. And Jesus isn't trying to get us to understand him. He wants us to trust him. Jesus wants to, to continue the conversation. That it's okay to be confused about things. The hope, the disappointment, the joy, the doubt, all of it. And he wants us to do it in community. To share our doubts, to share our frustrations, our fears, our joys. We need to be honest about life. We, need to all, uh, we all need a community that we can be safe in. To be honest in. Church has to be a safe place for anyone uh, at any stage of their journey. Because if it's not the church... And where is that place? Jesus is not afraid of questions or doubts or struggles, but he welcomes it. He gives us space for it. And the church wants uh, us uh, to put on, uh, on paper and sign it in blood. And Jesus said, no, skeptics are even welcome. You don't even have to believe right and you can still belong. These disciples even doubted that Jesus was the Messiah. In verse 21, we thought he was this, but we got it wrong. All right, so what's the point for today? Why the message on Easter? Well, many of us are guests here today, or at least maybe not regular church attenders. Some of you have, may have been guests last year. Some I'll see you at Christmas time. Sorry. Some of, you, some of you are believers, though, and some of you are doubters. And some of you, it's not even on your radar to follow Jesus. But I want you to know 
that you're welcome here. You're welcome here next week, and the week after that, and the week after that. If you believe it or not, if you doubt, or if you're absolutely sure, we're inviting you to do life together with us. Jesus' invitation to follow him was and is for everyone, which may require deconstructing your childhood faith or your parents' faith or the too small table that you've been eating at and build a bigger one with more room for everyone to come and sit and join. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's the hope of the resurrection. That's the reason for the table. A place for all to come and sit and find Jesus. While we're here, we're going to look at Scripture together and we're going to reread it and we're going to seek to know God's heart in it. And then we're going to invite others to engage in the discussion. And we're going to break bread together and we're going to celebrate in our baptism. And we're going to worship with song and we're going to give generously of our time and our money and we're going to serve one another. We're simply going to try to live out what it means to love God and to love others. And we're going to invite everyone to join us at the table. Because it's around the table where our eyes are open to see Jesus and the people we are with. It is no accident that Jesus is revealed as he sits having table fellowship with the two disciples here. The table was the place for fellowship in the ancient world. Here family and friends gathered to share time with each other. And in Luke's gospel, he has underscored the importance of meal scenes throughout his gospel. The table was the place where Jesus was heard, where his presence came across most intimately. The fact suggests that Jesus reveals himself in the midst of our basic moments of life. He is at home in the midst of our everyday activity. I want to make more room at the table. And if we don't invite people to the table, we may never see the Jesus inside of them that is waiting to encounter us. I don't want to be a church that is defined just by our beliefs, but by our actions. Creeds are only as strong as our deeds. Because at the end of it all, Jesus is going to look out at his followers and he's going to say, Well done, not well believed. Verse 36, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood up among them and said, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they had saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe... It, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it in their presence. And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. In other words, wake up, people. I'm here. I've always been here. I'm always with you. We no longer pray for God to show up or to fill this place, but we pray for God to make us aware of his presence already. The person sitting next to you or the stranger sitting across the table from you. 
the uprising begins because this is not the end. I thought I knew how this would end. But I wasn't really looking. seated for just a second. Yeah, give them a hand. Goodness gracious, y'all got my heart going in a good way. So I could tell sitting back there during the services, things were starting to get closer to the end. I could feel the excitement getting in some of your minds because you were sitting there thinking this thought. You were thinking, they're actually not going to take up an offering. You're dead wrong. (laughs) So we're fixing to go into a time of giving here in just a second. And I want to tell you a little story beforehand about something that was kind of funny that happened recently that's kind of been on my mind. Then I'm going to try to tie everything back together. So if you know anything about my family, you, you know my wife Jody, my son Jake, and I have a daughter named Jenna. And she knows I'm saying this today, so it's not going to be a surprise to her. She's a 14-year-old freshman at Swain County High School. Uh, she's the apple of my eye. She's beautiful. She's athletic. She's smart. I, I love her to absolute pieces. But if you know Jenna, you know that she has this strange, quirky sense of humor to her. And sometimes she says things and we're just like, did you really just say that? I mean, like, are you, do you really mean that? So set the stage for you. It's right after Christmas. We're in, we're in my truck. We went on a small family vacation. We're riding from Atlanta, Georgia to Charlotte, North Carolina. Long trip. So all of our family's in the truck and we're trying to do some things to pass the time. And I'm sure if you've had any kids, you know some of those things that you do. Uh, we'd went through the routine of karaoke. We were naming that tune. We were playing the sign game. We'd done this and that. And I was driving and I thought, what a great time for some Bible trivia. 
My mind went back to 1986, sitting over here in the youth group at Victory Baptist Church, the Bible trivia, the, the games we played, and I thought, we're going to do that. So we started looking up on Google Bible trivia questions. We started asking them, and, and my son and his girlfriend, they were answering quite a few of them because Jake has taken New Testament and Old Testament classes, so he's answered some, and I thought, I'm going to throw out a few of my own. So I started to ask questions. Jenna, bless her heart, she was struggling a little bit, and as a dad, I was thinking... Boy, you've done a great job teaching your daughter some of the Bible. I was, I was starting to feel really bad about myself. And I thought, well, I'm going to ask one more question. So I sat there as I was driving. I thought, I'm going to ask a good one. So I thought back to the, the John version of Jesus' death that we've looked at today. And I said, all right, guys, here's the question. All I want is Jesus' famous last three words he said on the cross from the book of John. And Jake and Hannah, they kind of looked at each other perplexed and Jody hadn't really said a whole lot. And all of a sudden, I look in the back and I, I see, me, 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 I know it, I know it, I know it. And it's Jenna. And I thought, oh boy, maybe she's finally going to get one right. So I look back and I said, all right, dear, give it to me. And in the most serious voice that you've ever heard, she was dead serious. She gets this Arnold Schwarzenegger impersonation and she goes, I'll be back. And I looked around over my shoulder and I said, did she really just say that? <laughs> Jenna, is that really what the book of John, is that not it, Daddy? No, that's not it. <laughs> that's not it. But I say that to say this. You know, we've went through this whole Easter season. We've celebrated so many things. We've looked this morning at, at the life of Jesus from his birth to the life he lived here on earth, the things that he did, all the teachings that he had. We've looked this week at, man, the things that he endured. He endured it for you. He endured it for me. He's the toughest guy that I've known that's ever walked the face of the earth to do what he did. We celebrate the fact today that the stone was rolled away and the fact that, you know what, he's not there, he is risen. But we also celebrate this awesome fact, I think, this morning. Of the what? He's not just up there doing nothing. He's coming again. And to me, that's so exciting to know that we serve a, a Savior that is risen and is coming again. And I want to read you just a quick thing here in John. It says... It says, don't let this throw you. You trust God, don't you? Trust me. There's plenty of room for you in my father's home. If it weren't so, would I have told you that I'm on my way to get a room ready for you? And if I'm on my way to get a room ready, I am going to come back and I'm going to get you so that you can live where I live. So to me, that's an awesome thing that we have as followers of Jesus Christ to look forward to, that we have a God that's preparing a place for you and for me, and that he's an active God. So that tells me this morning, as followers of Christ or not, we're to be active. We're not to sit on our hands and feet, are we? We're to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that involves is giving. A lot of times we don't like to talk about it. But he instructs us, just as he's doing things, we're to be doing things. Doing things for each other. Readying ourselves. Readying each other. Readying our church. And part of that is giving. Giving of our time. Giving of our talents and giving of our finances. So this morning, as these guys play another song, I'll come back in a minute and we'll do our collection. Just think about that. We serve not only a God that's risen, but we also serve a God that's coming again for you and for me. If I could have four of my friends to please come up and grab these two baskets here and these two over here, and let's bow our heads and prepare our hearts to give this morning, please. Dear God, we come to you this morning, Lord, just thinking about all that you did for us, Lord, those thousands of years ago, Lord, these past three days. God, when I think about the just the anguish, the beatings that you had to 
to go through, Lord, the things that you had to put your body through, Lord. Lord, you did that all for me and all for us. And God, I can't imagine that. I can't imagine the thought that, God, while that was happening, Lord, that I was on your mind.